Welcome to a special European United podcast from the heart of the EU in the European Parliament Media Centre. I'm Ken Sweeney. And I'm Stella Bass. We will be talking to a number of very interesting guests. We have Charles Tinnock, British MEP, Conservative but pro-European. And we have uh, four Fine Gael Irish MEPs, Sean Kelly, Mairead McGuinness, who of course is the first Vice President of the EP, Deirdre Clune and Brian Hayes. Yeah, we'll be also uh, looking at a bit of news that's broke, of course, across the week. But we're here today because we want to let you know that we are broadcasting live from the European Parliament. We're here as guests of the uh, Irish European Parliament, European Parliament in Ireland. And you can find out all about their campaign, which is called This Time I'm Voting. And if you want to go online, they have a special website dedicated to that. It's called thistimeonvoting.eu. You can log on there. You can find out all about the campaign. You can find out how to register to vote. Because let's face it, your vote is the most important thing. Thing you need to do. If you don't vote, you can't make a difference. Uh, so again, the uh, website is thistimeofvoting.eu. You can also go to your local registry office to make sure that you're on the registry list, because again, if you can't vote, if you can't be registered. Now, if you can also find out about europeanunited.eu, our website is europeanunited.eu. We are at Twitter at europeanunited.eu, and our Facebook is europeanunited.eu. Very easy to remember, isn't it, Stella? That's for sure. Okay, so we want to introduce you to a guest today. Yes, indeed. Uh, we're going to introduce Kate Hickey from Irish Central. Hi, Kate. Hi. Good to have you with us. Kate, how are you? Great, thanks. Uh, now, you're not based in the US. No, I'm based in Dublin. Uh, we're actually part of Irish Studio now. The Irish Central is actually celebrating its 10th anniversary. Uh, Irish Central grew up out of Irish Voice, which is a New York newspaper which was founded by Neil O'Dowd 35 years ago, would you mm-hmm. believe? Um, so Irish Central a decade ago came on as their online presence and it has just exploded into a kind of a worldwide expat uh, curator of Irish news and genealogy heritage history. And is this your first time here in the Parliament? It is, yeah. Um, I was delighted to get an invitation. Uh, obviously Brexit and uh, the whole backstop situation has been big news for our Irish American audience. Um, so it's, it's been a real education and kind of an eye-opener to uh, the future what is the role of, say, Irish Central in terms of getting these type of news over to your audience? Uh, I suppose our news, people have put it to us that we're a curator of news. Or obviously, we're a smaller organisation um, working. We have a full-time team of four people. We still have a quite a big like, listener readership. We do, readership, but I you? suppose what we would call ourselves is curators of news. We um, There's so much information these days. There's news coming out every second. You're looking at Twitter, there's something else. So it's hard for people to absorb the news. So I suppose we look at ourselves as kind of curators of the news with opinions from long-standing people who have experienced, such as Neil O'Dowd, our, far- our founder, and experienced journalists. But for the most part, uh, when it comes to politics or news, what we're doing is really curating news and telling people, OK, this is what you need to know today. And what size of, say, readership or listenership or would you have? What would be the amount of people that would come to Irish Central? Uh, currently we have an average readership of 2.2 million a month. Wow. Um, that readership is based predominantly in North America, Canada, so about 50 to 60% on average. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's Ireland, the UK, mainland Europe, Australia and Asia. So Would they be, say, direct expats or would they be say second third generation Irish Americans it is a mixture and we can see uh, a mixture in our dem- demographic mm-hmm. which you know makes sense accordingly <laughs> we do have those who are early expats who have left in the last um, say in the 80s and then again in the most recent recession from Ireland but then we have readers who have never been to Ireland but aspire to go back they may be second generation sure. Irish American or just have a grow for Ireland and Irish culture um, but we actually did a research with the work on the 
UCD a couple of years ago and found out that 35% of our readership has never been to Ireland. So that's something that uh, is really interesting. So um, it's, it's not uncommon, I suppose. It's not uncommon and yeah. it is a big trip. So yeah. we kind of are a connection to Ireland for people that uh, just have an affinity with Ireland or are connected but aren't there, I suppose. And are people, say Irish Americans, what are they? What's the mood about, say, Brexit at the moment? Are they familiar with it, or is it just something that they're kind of watching as maybe it's like car crash TV? Yeah. I think that is exactly what it is. It is car crash TV. I know a lot of our readers would have interest in Northern Ireland politics, um, and to a lesser extent, I have to say Dublin politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's since in the last two years, they really have been eyes on Brexit, and especially since the discussions of the backstop stop and the possibility or the looking forward to perhaps having to have a vote on a united Ireland. That's something that they're Mm -hmm. really uh, interested in reading about. Um, But again, there is so much information that we also find ourselves being kind of an explainer or um, aiming to clarify a little more. So there is a bit more responsibility on Irish Central to kind of be kind of a little bit more active in that field? I suppose so. We would always aim to cover uh, important issues or things that pop up in politics um, but we knew from our comments on our website and engaging with our website we are actually one of the most we are the most engaged uh, website in Ireland apart from would you believe Waterers Whispers with our audience so our well audience, for our European audience just in case they don't know who Waterford Whispers is they're a satirical website based in Ireland who sometimes uh, they're very um, very good at uh, causing a bit of trouble because yeah. people tend to mistake them for real news absolutely for any, yeah. any of our sort of British or, or American uh, listeners they're uh, similar to the, the, Onion, the Onion or the, or the Daily say, Mash yeah. they're yeah. very good yeah. Yeah. oh super very so, so going forward um, is this maybe a, a possible step for Irish to be looking at more European politics and kind of pushing it over to the to the other side of the Atlantic? I think that from Irish Central's point of view, we are, we are kind of that bridge between um, Ireland and America and we definitely celebrate and encourage that relationship between America and Ireland. Um, we just had a Brexit event actually in New York um, a couple of weeks ago and that went really well and there's obviously an eagerness and an interest in what's going on with Brexit and the future for Ireland. So uh, I think that is something that we'll continue to look at. I don't know if it's, I mean, obviously the US politics will always be at the forefront for our uh, audience, but um, Brexit and Europe is definitely something that isn't going to go away, uh, and I think we'll be discussing it for at least the next 15 years, so it's going to be on our... And what about, say, in terms of Irish Central, with regards to the future of the actual the organisation, is there a membership scheme, or is it all free? Does it rely on sponsorship, or does it rely on... Uh, advertising revenue, is that how it works? Um, yeah, Irish Central was bought by Liam Lynch, who's a VC from New York, who's mm-hmm. strong Irish roots, as you can tell, uh, who then went on to buy Harmonia Publications, six magazines of theirs. So now we, I, I should rather say, our small team in Ireland um, lives under the publishing house there. So we have, uh, we're growing basically we're supported by the fact that we're amongst those companies um, and we also advertise or we also rely entirely on advertising at the moment mm-hmm. uh, obviously we've uh, looked into other assets um, other ways of monetizing but for now it's, it's purely advertising so going forward for the next year obviously mm-hmm. your big deal now will be the forthcoming elections in America yeah what happens what, how does our essential do that what, what, what kind of do you lay out a big plan is, is there a team put together or um, 
Um, I suppose we're, we're again we're curating the news so we do we will be focusing on at the moment I think there's five Democrats who are putting their hat in the ring who have Irish roots so our readers tend to kind of get behind that and then obviously the, the main star of the circus Donald Trump gets a lot of reaction uh, for the most part over the last say six months we've been following Better work. we also are closely um, uh, following uh, Joe Crowley who lost out his seat to Cortez in Queens it's been a big story Joe Kennedy and the possibility of him running in Boston so we're really I mean there's so much going on in the, the um, US elections and there's so many moving parts that again we act as a curator and also an opinion kind of voice on that um, With regards to say the way you gain your news or the way you build up that coverage do you work with other affiliates and network organisations do you work with other media organisations we don't actually we uh, have set up a new platform um, which we're calling Irish Voices which is actually a contributors platform along the lines of the same the Huffington Post had Washington or yeah Huffington Post and Washington Post and um, Medium is a good version or even to a sillier extent Board Panda which means that our contributors can go online and um, send us in stories send us in news send us in tips um, which has been working well. We also have um, just interested parties. So over the years, if, if something happens in Boston, we have a man in Cape Cod who sends us in the news, um, and we have a big readership um, and strong, long-standing connections to San Diego and the and on the East Coast. Um, so we really kind of rely on word of mouth, and then. Um, broadcast news. So it's a bit quick fire for you guys. Yeah. You have I to be mean, kind of ready to hit the ground fast. Yeah, we're very kind of, um, pride ourselves in being small but nimble. As I said, we're only five full-time staff, um, but we get out about um, 15 to 16 stories a day and they vary across travel, as I said, heritage, genealogy but then there's also politics and what whatever news we feel is relevant to our audience that day. And were you involved in the last elections? I was, I was, yeah. Yeah. And how, how, what is it like being that? What is it like being in an American? What's it like being, a, you know, in the kind of the, the thick of it at an American election? Uh, well, I was actually in Dublin for the last right. election, but I was covering it from here. So I was actually at the uh, Democrats party in Guinness, okay. Guinness Hop House when the counts came in. It's a circus. It must be, isn't it? It was. It was a total circus. I mean, uh, everyone was dead searched there that, that night that Hillary was going to win. Um, <laughs> and it was an amazing party. And then half 11 Florida's votes came in and everyone just flopped. You know, uh, it is, it's is—it's a total circus, and I think that this year is going to be even more so, um, but it all remains to be seen, really. Okay. Listen, thank you so much, Kate, and uh, we'll be keeping an eye on Irish Central, of course. So we're here in the media centre. What do you think of it? It's wonderful. It really is. It's uh, well. It's first of all, it's very, very high tech, and we're surrounded by TV crews, by radio people. It really is a hive of activity here. This and afternoon. where we're actually sitting, if you ever get the chance to go to Euronews or something, you just see this big circular desk. We're right beside a circular desk. I don't know why. I don't know how we haven't been moved yet. Listen, we're as close as <laughs> to actually. Uh, so we have to take a picture, and we'll set it up with when we publish the podcast. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we also got a chance to speak to uh, the first vice president of the Parliament today, uh, Mairead McGuinness, who is um, in the EPP. Um, Mairead uh, gave us a couple of minutes today, which we got lots of information off her, Stella. We certainly did. She was Mairead, very, very... Mairead ad- always has something to say. Well, well I think in, in her capacity as an ex-journalist as well, yeah. she was very informative and very forthcoming on uh, on lots of topics. So uh, let's, let's go over to her. What was really ha- important, just before we do, I think what was really important about Mairead is that she she's such a strong character and I, I find what's really great is that she's when she she's a perfect person for that role. Yeah, for sure. And I just hope that in the next round of elections that 
if, she, if it's not her in that position that we find that we have somebody who, who is just as strong in that voice, role, you know. Sure. So we're going to have a listen to, to the conversation that we had with her and uh, you, can, you can have a listen to see what she has to say. Uh, I got elected in 04, so um, this is my third mandate. I'm on the Constitution Affairs Committee dealing with Brexit on environment, food safety, public health and on agriculture and rural development. Um, Brexit has been the big issue for us since the referendum and obviously last night's statement really changes a lot but we don't know what it changes or what it will mean. Um, I'm not so sure that the timings will work, that the Prime Minister can get an agreement across the House and a ratification process by May the 22nd but we have to wait and see what she presents to the Council next week. Um, we have to ratify it as well. So. By you know, by the end of when we we break up on the 18th, April the eighteenth, uh, for you know elections. So um, we if for us to ratify it, we'd have to do it before that date, but we can't. So we probably have to be recalled. So there's all sorts of complexities and legal issues with it. But I've just been talking to a mm -hmm. colleague from the UK there, and I suppose the sense of frustration amongst moderates is huge. Um, I thought the statement last night where the Prime Minister is reaching across the aisle and obviously you know walking away from the hard line of her. Um, cabinet colleagues, there's a large number of them, over 10 I think have said they're not happy with this, so there could be more things happening you know, in the UK, and we're watching that but we can't go near it, that's their business. We are, we've got the withdrawal agreement, the Prime Minister knows that it's not for reopening, it has got to be ratified, we can work on the future partnership and what's in the political declaration. And just on a no-deal scenario, we had two representatives of the House of Lords yesterday in the committee and in my question I said, is it not true that a no deal is a very short term scenario that within a day or a week the UK would need to come back to Europe and say we have unfinished business? What is the unfinished business? Citizens' rights, uh, the Irish question and the, the budgetary issues. So ever which way you look at this, these core issues will never go away, they've got to be dealt with and then we need to get to the future. Brexit situation is changing minute by minute and we were delighted to have the opportunity to sit down with Charles Tinnock, British MEP, to ask him for his views on the current status of Brexit. Now at the 11th hour, you know, in a pretty desperate situation, I just gave an interview to Portuguese television, because I speak Portuguese, uh, and uh, it's becoming an international embarrassment really, uh, and it's the reputational damage which the UK is sustaining now because of the ability, inability to, 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 to uh, conclude satisfactorily uh, what should have been a relatively straightforward process had it been done uh, reasonably and properly from the beginning. You know, I always said that at the very beginning that given the narrowness of the, um, the victory, uh, the number of lies and false promises uh, and sort of unicorn deluded sort of sunlit upland promises made by the hardline Brexiteers, I mean, and some of them, of course, are in government. Uh, given the peculiar franchise which excluded my uh, my EU wife uh, from having a vote, and my uh, British Irish mother living in Paris from having a vote, both of whom are directly impacted by Brexit because their rights are being taken away from them, as it were, um, and allowed, uh, you know, two million Commonwealth uh, voters, uh, say, in the referendum when they're not EU citizens, and many of them, of course, again, were spun a, 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 effectively a false promise by the Brexiteers that there would be a change in, in migration policy to favour the Commonwealth over Europeans. All these things, to me, I found deeply 
upsetting. So I was never, I was never really convinced by the robustness of the single message that was the interpretation by the British government that Brexit meant Brexit and the hardest Brexit conceivable out of the single market, the common, you know, the customs union, uh, no jurisdiction of the ECJ, no long-term budget contributions, out of Euratom, uh, moving the European Medicines Agency out of London and leaving all the agencies. All these things, to me, I don't think that there was any mandate for at all, frankly. And uh, it was really uh, the hardline position taken by the government and very much uh, welcomed by the hardline and Eurosceptic faction within the Conservative Party, the ERG. And so I have been battling initially for the softest Brexit. I believe that had Mrs May agreed to something like a Nor what's now known as the, known as the Norway Plus, I, I actually called it the EEA, uh, Single Market and Customs Union formulation very early on, but I was regarded as a sort of a some sort of Romaniac loon at the time for even suggesting we, we, we went along those lines. But we've gone full circle, I'm afraid, uh, having gone for the hardest options and found how impossible it is to re reconcile them with safeguarding British industry, particularly the car industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the chemical industry, uh, and, and also in particular the issue to do with Ireland and the border uh, and to prevent a return to troubles. How, you know, up against all these obstacles, it became clear that you know this hard Brexit was going to be very, very difficult to implement, uh, although Mrs. May finally came up with her deal. But of course, that involved the backstop, which, you know, although the British government, including people like Boris Johnson, had agreed to it back in December of, um, you know, of, of uh, the previous year, of 2017, um, that, that obviously they hadn't read the, the, the small details and they hadn't really understood what was, in, what was implied in that. And so they then uh, pushed back very heavily on Mrs. May on this issue, uh, particularly the backstop. Um, I didn't like the political declaration, the uh, long-term framework agreement, uh, which, was, although not binding, said that Britain had to be out of the single market because couldn't, there couldn't be freedom of movement and it had to be out of the customs union because it was termed that it has to be an independent trade policy for Britain. Um, and of course, I, so, so, man, so she, Mrs. May managed, unfortunately, to displease both the pro-European conservatives, people like myself and others like Anna Soubry has now left the party, yeah. but Dominic Grieve, etc., a, a group of about 15 Tory MPs and a couple of us over here, uh, and at the same time alienate the hardline Brexiteers who didn't like the backstop which locked the whole of the United Kingdom into the customs union until unless and until um, alternative methods were devised to have an open border uh, with no physical infrastructure, which frankly doesn't exist at the moment and may not exist for some time. Uh, and so we are where we are now. This, uh, her vote was defeated three times um, her, for her deal. Um, and we will see now whether, having seen that none of the compromises which were part of the indicative votes found a majority, although I was quite pleased that um, the idea of a second referendum, which I've been campaigning for for the last uh, more than a year now, um, that it, it actually got the largest number of votes, uh, although it was defeated by 12. Uh, and then the customs union got slightly less votes, but defeated by three because of the abstainers. So there are two sort of front-runner options, and now Mrs. May has called on Mr. Corbyn to uh, sit down together and find a solution which is agreeable to Parliament. Um, Mr. Corbyn, in theory, should be bound by his uh, Labour Party conference mandate that... Uh, uh, there should be a people's vote, there should be a public vote, I think that's the way they term it, uh, which is now known as a confirmation, confirmatory vote to whatever 
is agreed. So if we end up now with uh, Mrs. May's withdrawal agreement, with some tweaking to the political declaration on the future framework to include a permanent customs union, which I support, but of course is very controversial, is causing huge splits in the Conservative Party and in the Cabinet. Um, if that is the case, I would hope that he would also insist on a confirmatory vote, i.e. another referendum, which includes the, the Remain option. I'm quite confident now, three years on, after the British electorate have discovered what the EU is, what it does for them, and how many lies were told about how easy and quick it would be, uh, not to mention the fact that some of the older, older Leave voters are no longer with us and younger people who couldn't vote in 2016 can now vote. Uh, something like a million people have changed in the demographics because of three years have gone by. That in itself would, re would result in 50-50 if nobody changed their mind. But there does seem to be a genuine shift. Uh, most opinion polls are showing 55% remain and some as high as 59 depending on what the alternative is. So I'm confident we could win uh, having you know, got informed consent from the public to stay. But if we lose again, fair enough, particularly if it's a uh, a more uh, realistic majority which is convincing and it's conducted fairly and freely uh, we have to live with that but at least we know what the public want now because I think three years on I don't think people know exactly what the public wants because the, clearly opinion is shifting uh, and what's now on offer is not what was promised back in 2016 so in a nutshell uh, we'll see in the next few days what is agreed I think uh, I suspect that um, the government has to have it all wrapped up by the 10th of April uh, because that's the summit meeting here in Brussels. Um, and if she gets her deal through with Labour support, let's see whether it has a, an attachment to a, a requirement for a, a, another referendum. Um, but if it doesn't, I suppose we, we're all out by the 22nd of May. Uh, and we'll see what the European Union agrees to now in terms of an extension because it was quite clear that uh, you know, they wanted uh, some kind of democratic uh, outcome involving a general election or a people's vote, a uh, second referendum, if there is to be a longer extension, and there'll also be a requirement to fight the European elections. Uh, and so I'll see whether, whether they agree to that there's just this sort of thing cooked up between Labour and, and Mrs May without any second referendum. But, of course, if it's all done by the 22nd of May, fine. If the extension goes beyond that because there isn't the time or Labour uh, don't agree or they insist on a second referendum or whatever, then there'll need, there'll need to be a longer extension and there will have to be a European election. Certainly Britain is preparing itself for a European election. I think, uh, you know, all the regional authorities, administrative authorities have been instructed to make preparations. I think one of the big problems facing all the parties, Labour and Conservative, is there's no budget set aside because this wasn't supposed to happen. Um, and we'll see you know, if there is one, how it's fought, on what basis, what manifesto, etc. Um, but um, as somebody who's always believed that the best deal is to stay in the European Union, I have absolutely no problem at all in becoming a candidate again if my party will have me in spite of my pro-European views. <laughs>
Brian Hayes has been a Fine Gael MEP for quite a while. I think it's around eight years now. Uh, but he's actually stepping down this term. He'd be taking up a private position. Uh, but we did get an opportunity to speak with him, and we, uh, we, uh, he gave us some very frank views. That's for sure. We That's were surprised. Sure. <laughs> it must be due to the fact that he obviously is... He's uh, able to loosen his tongue a little bit. He loosened his tie yeah, a little bit, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, but we also sure. actually got a, we got a surprise visit from Deirdre Clune as well. Yes, indeed. And Deirdre is up for re-election, so she will be throwing her hat into the ring. And uh, she gave us a lot. She, she's a self-confessed Europhile. Mm-hmm. Um, and she gave us some interesting views into her work here in the European Parliament. So yeah, uh, she seems to be able. She seems to have a kind of strong views about the environment and yeah, so on. That's true. And yeah. but she, she spoke about some of the, the committees that she sits on. So uh, yeah, let's uh, let's go over and have a listen. The problem is that this election is seen as a second-order election by national politicians and by the national media, and especially the traditional media. So you guys, as non-traditional media, it's really important. Uh, role you have because you penetrate audiences that traditional media don't penetrate. We know that for a fact. Um, I think it's important that so so the, so, so the political establishment do not regard the urban elections as, as a serious, it's a second order election for them. The dawn is the epicenter of their world. The, the traditional media, they don't invest out here. There's two correspondents here for a country. Two, you know, other similar sized countries have maybe 10 or 11. So there's never really a proper penetration of the debates. And the doll doesn't take it seriously. So for instance, I'll give you one example. Tomorrow we're putting through what's called the Pan-European Pension Proposal, mm-hmm. which I co-authored. For the first time ever, we're going to have a third pillar, EU-wide branded pension pillar. Baby steps. There'll be PEP 3, 4, and 5, no doubt, in the next few years, a few mandates. But um, if you take that now, for instance, I got a call the other day from insurance pro- pension providers to the effect that uh, what are you guys doing when it comes to um, pension schemes less than 100? You're putting all these additional regulatory requirements on us. But actually, it's the opposite, actually. I said, if you read the text, we've given you an opt-out for pension schemes less than 100 deliberately because we don't want to increase administrative costs. But the problem is Department of Social Welfare are interpreting this in such a way to suit their agenda, Mm. which they have power to do. So a lot of the stuff that goes through here, there's significant opt-outs from member states whether they want to do it or not in transposition. The stuff hasn't even been trans- transposed to the Irish Parliament yet, even yes. though it's operable from the 1st of January. We actually haven't put it to the doll yet. Now, so there's, a, there's no real debate in Leinster House on any of these issues. PEP, climate change, transport, there's n- no one really gets this stuff when we're doing it here. And that's not the same. In, in other similar sized countries, there is much more serious debate on these directives. The Dutch will put up red cards and yellow cards. No. Mm. So the Dutch colleagues here are voting against PEP tomorrow. Some Spanish socialists are voting against PEP. Yeah. Why? Because their parliaments have mandated them to do that. So we have a very immature debate on Europe when it comes to traditional media and especially in, a, in our in the law. And uh, it's, 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 it's not getting better. How can that be bridged, do you think? I think it requires, uh, you know, as you know, the Chinese say, you know, cultural revolutions take a long time. <laughs> and I, I don't know how that can be bridged. We have a political system that's very localised, right, obsessed mm. by glidalism. The doll is performing to be on the 6 o'clock news, lights, camera, action, yeah. pantomime performances, mm. all that is the epicentre of the world. And I know I was one of them, Jared was one of them, you know. You're, you're, you're judged how often you can get on and do the fake anger stuff but but it's that we don't have policy content broadly speaking a legislature that's policy content 
Mm. And, and the dilemma is that a lot of the really important stuff here is dropped off the scene. So you get consequently, anything bad is down to the face Europe of the bureaucrats what will and the Europhiles. Yeah. Anything good is down to the Irish government, or the crowd, whoever is in government. It's a kind of a, a predilection that they have in Irish politics. That's what How I mean. often do you hear, what will Europe say, and Europe says this, and Europe, we are Europe. There's yeah, 11 of us exactly. elected here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, as we speak, council ministers are meeting, our Taoiseach is over, right? and we are Europe. We make, you shape, and you make. Like, we've had a, I just fascinating, just recently, we had, um, we're preparing legislation in the event of a no-deal Brexit here for air, for air, um, the time of the Transport yeah, Committee, really air traffic stuff. and road access in the event of a crash out on the 29th of March, which has passed. But anyway, it's going to, it's, it's, it's there for, and we've put structures in place, um, you know, to ensure access, continued access for Irish road hauliers for a period of time, for nine months to prevent disorder. Again, that air, air anything that's booked airline-wise can, can travel. But like, I found, at a, I was at a room like this, with all the various political groupings, you know, I was leading for the EPP on it. And you can actually influence and change. And the result that came out was completely different from the beginning, from the Commission's proposal. But because we worked, I worked with, with the individuals around the table, then we went to a trilogue where we had the Council and the Commission and ourselves. And, even, and we were able to make a difference in those two very short but very important files really important files. Now, I hope they'll never have to be utilised, but there is a strong Irish reflection in those. And, so, the, and that's and the really important that's, work. And that, that's that really matters for people. And, and uh, hopefully the next, if I'm here in the next parliament, we have an opportunity to shape what that future relationship will be with the UK. But we can do it because you can explain to people about the truck driver who's working from Wexford and who's got to get through Rosslare and, you know, they're only, these are only small businesses and you can't apply big picture stuff. You have to recognise that they have to, you know, that they need access and that um, just prevent chaos at the ports if everybody couldn't get out you'd have a, to just let it happen for nine months so we, we you're really able to explain um, stories and, and the effect it has on you and people do listen one, one of the problems I think the last two years is that we have politicians the media lunching out on brexit as if I mean brexit is very important blah 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 we all know that <laughs> but it doesn't change what I mean brexit of course, changes the relationship Ireland UK, blah blah blah. That's a lot of generalisation, though, and and you've huge amounts of time being spun out on Brexit this, Brexit that. It's in your opinion. R opinion. It's all subjective opinion. Nobody knows. Uh, rather than on the actual detailed stuff that Deirdre's mentioned, so uh, there's very little political media interest in the detail, but huge political media interest in the quaffing around on. Brexit. Even just on the, you know, you're listening to stuff, be it either some of the ads that are or some of the comment, the commentaries. There's an awful lot of scaremongering. It's like worst case scenario is constantly time. promoted. It's, it's fitting, I mean, if you just look at any poster, any, you know, yeah. I mean, political. I know I am a politician, although in the while I won't be. Um, if you, you know, the best way, political meeting on Brexit. So politicians are lunching out on this stuff. Do you really think that British? democracy and its system is ready for big change or no matter what happens that system is going to stay the same and it's, it's blunt force there forever I think the first past the post system makes it very hard for big yeah. radical parliamentary change I mean the last big radical parliamentary change happened really with the demise of the Liberal Party in 1918 mm. wasn't it mm. and eventually Clement Attlee's government coming in after the war that was a, the last big systemic change in UK politics um, and I, that suits Labour and the Tories mm. to have first past the post. 
Now, they did ask the question, it was the, it was the prize that the concession, the concession that the Liberals, when they went to government Conservatives, there was no support mm. for an alternative voting system. So, um, I think it's going to be very hard to break that two-party system, mm. as long as first past the post is there. But what about, say, if looking at the Conservative Party, could it not be split to a point where that could will be, be dangerous? That's, that's, that's happening. I think that's, moving. I think that's yeah. what we're getting. And also you have that cross-party consensus between with this new independent group that has kind of you've, you've taken sort of the, the moderates from Labour and moderates from Conservative and they're actually and the Liberals, and the Liberals over there the SNP you know so it, it's no creating no of those 30 parties doing well though mm. I mean the SNP was supposed to in the, in the 1980s which was more to the, to the, to the right of the Labour Party mm. that, that, that finished off within eight, eight years so it's very hard to break through without PR mm. and what about Scotland What's, what, where, does, where is Scotland you guys are probably talking to the likes of Alan Smith here. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, he we spoke yeah. to Alan before and he just he's distraught about it. You know. So, so where, where, is, where is Scotland? Well, are they, who, who knows? Are they waiting mean, in the wings? I mean, they probably they think they're waiting in the wings and I don't know what, what, what's going to happen. I mean, yeah, they're waiting in the wings. They said they haven't, but then they're, they're not doing that well in the polls. The SNP, who promised they're not doing well at all. Well, uh, is it, it, is it, is it, yeah, they did, yeah. So, Mm. Is that is it that popular? Is that that's their their reason for being? So is it that popular now anymore? Yeah, I think Scott. I think I think the the only way Irish unity will happen actually is if the Scots leave the UK. I think that yeah. is a much bigger instinct mm. and political influencer than an Irish unity poll that the Shinners are looking for. I think the unions will look very closely at the UK in a circumstance where Scotland to leave. And largely because if you go down to Larne, you know, the northeast of, 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 of Ulster, the connectivity is really to, to Scotland. You know, they, they send their kids to universities there. There is a connectivity that's, that's very football and everything. So I think that, that, that would be the big game changer for Irish unity, actually, if Scotland were to leave. I agree with Deirdre, it doesn't seem to be a, I mean, in a circumstance where people are concerned with the future, they, they stick with the status quo. But um, who knows what will be the outcome of this? I mean, this is as a, I mean, a, the rise of the SNP, in my view, the British democracy has paid a price for this because, in a funny way, the, the uh, English nationalist voice is now much stronger. I mean, understandably, I mean, I, I understand it. You know, if Scottish MPs can decide English law, but, but uh, you know, English MEPs or MPs can't decide Scottish law, it goes back to the question, was it Tam Dale's question? The West, West Lothian question. Yeah. There is a fundamental incongruity in that, isn't there? Mm. Mm. And that has led to, I think, English, an explosion in English nationalism. And England has no parliament, effectively. England has no parliament. Yeah. So, no so, mm. And they've tried to replace yeah. this by these directly elected mayors. I'm not so certain people feel any loyalty to them. Mm. So I think, I think the Scottish thing is fascinating as to where things go. But I don't see an immediate solution to it. But, I mean, long-term, you'd have to say Scotland will be independent. And in a perfect world, of course, Fianna Fáil will take the SDLP and you guys will take the DUP. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about a majority. <laughs> just in regards to uh, DPP, just going with the, um, the vote on Fidesz, keeping them in there, do you think they made the right decision keeping Fidesz in? You're incorrect in saying they're keeping him in. Well, they suspended they them. They suspended him. Yeah. Difference. Mm. I was one of those who I know, was yeah. most vocal, and especially yeah. in... I know the whole Fine Gael yeah. group were against them, I know In that, internal yeah. meetings, yeah. so we had yeah. the delegation. So yeah. it would be myself and Gunnar Hockmark, mm. 
from Sweden who would have raised it first and we said we're mm. not taking this, this is nonsense. Yeah. I said if you Eurosceptic did what he was doing, mm. we'd be raging. Yeah. So there is certain logic in it, in suspending him indefinitely to see will he come around and if he doesn't, it's expulsion. And is there a timeline on that, Sean? Not until after elections at least, you know, because you've Parliament is finishing now. So there will be, I would presume, there will set a timeline, October, November. Do you think that if more people on the street of Dublin knew that kind of Fine Gael were sitting in the same seats as them, would it make a difference when it comes to the election? Well, we aren't sitting in the same seats as them now. And they're suspended. I know. And we we have to push them out. But you know, the, do you know the way the likes of Sinn Féin would? No, but you know the way the likes of Sinn Féin and opponents will use that against you, though, when it comes to campaign elections, because they have already done that. Well, we'll answer them. Yeah. Them the facts. So there's a sex, suspension and expulsion. Yeah. There is an opportunity now to show that he is willing to reform. If he doesn't, he'll be expelled. What does he? What has he said when he says he's willing to reform? What What does he mean by that? Does he mean that he's going to? put something down solid or has he has yeah, he yeah he'd have to withdraw some of the statements he made about Juncker and about Brussels and uh, that was kind of a, a plot against Hungary and he has to be uh, withdraw some of the points he made about migrants and so forth because he's playing silly beggars po- posting up things isn't he yeah. I mean covering over posters for visits is, is a bit silly beggars isn't it <laughs> yeah but that was that was seen for what it was yeah so okay to the inclusion of Mark Durkin in the, the upcoming election, um, obviously kind of from from the north, and he, I think he said he, he might stay be based up there if he gets elected. Do you think he's a, he would get sort of support in the in the Dublin area, or do you think are there pros and cons in that sense? Hopefully, he's a very good candidate. He has great credentials. He's worked hard, and the previous person to come from the north in the European elections was John Cushnahan. Way back 25 years ago, I'd say now, mm-hmm. and they thought he had no chance. He, was elected, he turned out to be a great MEP. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good at this particular time to reach out to Northern Ireland so they feel that they're not being left behind. There's nobody representing half the population at least in Westminster. They don't have an assembly. So a voice yeah. would be very helpful and it also helps to show that we want to keep the All Island community that we have been building over the last 20 years. Okay, that comes to the end of our podcast, brought to you especially from the European Parliament here in Brussels. We'd like to thank our guests, Kate Hickey from Irish Central, Brian Hayes from Fine Gael, Sean Kelly from Fine Gael. And also to Mairead McGuinness, the first Vice President of the European Parliament. We were thrilled that she had some time for us. To Deirdre Clune and, of course, to Charles Tinnock, the British MEP. You can find out more about us at europeunited.eu. Our Twitter handle is europeunitedeu and check us out on Facebook, europeunited.eu. And finally, of course, we're here today because we're invited by the European Parliament here in Ireland. So don't forget to go online. It's so important that you've got to check out the campaign they have. The website was thistimeimvoting.eu. You can go online there. You can register on the website. You can find out all the information that you need to vote because remember, if you're not registered, you can't vote. So that's it for us. Take care. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much, guys. See you then. Bye-bye.